0: Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. The reading is from the book of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In this way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Thank you, Mark. Morning Redemption. How y'all doing? Good. We are, we are the blessed people. We are the people that don't own property up north, and so we don't have to go through the trouble of traveling up north on a holiday weekend. We get to stay here in Phoenix and go to church on Sunday morning, aren't we the blessed people? Good. You guys were much more enthusiastic about it than the first service, I gotta tell you. They were grumbling about that, so uh, I'm just gonna jump right in. We are continuing in the Sermon on the Mount. Last week we started with verses 1 through 12, the Beatitudes. Uh, I think it's interesting that after the sermon last week, uh, somebody came up and said this to me, and I think this person got it. I thought it was awesome. He said, You know, we follow the biggest reject in history, and yet we are killing ourselves to fit into the world. Think about that. This is why Jesus felt compelled to tell us this is how we're to live our lives. It turns the world and its values, what we called last week the world politic, on its ear, but he says this is where the blessing is, this is how citizens of the kingdom of God live. We are poor in spirit, we mourn our sin, we are peacemakers, we're merciful, and we're going to be persecuted, and we're going to be reviled. And in that, we find blessing as the citizens of the kingdom of God. That is our politic and so that's just facet we follow the biggest reject in history he was taken to the cross and yet you and I we say we follow Jesus and yet we're constantly trying to fit into this world well now we look at verses 13 through 16 just continuing in this sermon and this little four verse passage which is so loved and, and familiar to, to many of us this passage clearly speaks to the distinctive nature of of not only the individual follower of Christ, but also the church, the distinctive nature. We are different. Now, not odd, though some of us clearly are, but we're talking about distinctive. Certainly from the world, we understand that. We talked a little bit about that last week. But one of the things we need to remember is we're not just distinctive from the world in general, but specifically a follower of Christ is going to be distinctive from somebody who does not follow Christ. And this distinction is not mandatory, but it's inevitable. When you are filled with the Holy Spirit, when God comes... And saves you. And presents you with this new heart. Literally pulls out this old heart of stone. And gives us this new heart of life. This new heart of flesh. In Christ. The resurrected Christ is living in us. It's not just mandatory that we're going to be distinctive. But it is inevitable that we're going to be different. That people are going to notice a different, a difference. And that's this distinctiveness, I will tell you, has a bright side. And it also has a very tight side. Kind of an up part and a down part. Understand that the Christian ethic is both admired by people and it's repelled by people. There's both of that going on. People who don't know it, people who don't understand it, they admire it, but it also, in a way, it repels them. But in reality, what we need to understand as followers of Christ, the purpose of this ethic, the purpose of our faith, the purpose of following Christ is not to be admired and it's not to be repelled but rather it is to give God glory. That's the, the punchline of this passage. Jesus says, when you're salt and light and you're effective and people see the good works, God is the one who gets glory, not us. We're not to be admired. We're not to be, uh, over, we're, not to, we're not to contribute to the fact that the message of the gospel is tough for people to hear. We're not to be overly repellent, if you want to say it that way. But rather, all of this is pointing towards the glory of God. Because it's him who's living in us. It's his Holy Spirit who is filling us. And that's our big idea today. God is glorified in our distinctiveness. So what we're going to do today is we're going to read the passage, we're going to unpack it, and then we're going to apply it to our lives. So we'll reread it, just to make sure where we are. Jesus says this, Matthew 5, 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste how shall its saltiness be restored it is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet that's literally what they would do when salt would would become no good in the household how, salt was a big household item in first century just like it is for many of us today especially important in the first century and they'd throw it out if it had lost its saltiness Then he says, you're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. That would be goofy. But on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. First question I think we have to answer is what is the relationship of these four verses to the 12 that came before it that we looked at last week, and to verses 17 and beyond that we'll start looking at next week. Well, first of all, notice the emphasis that Jesus puts on the salt and light metaphors not working. If the salt loses its saltiness, if it loses its effectiveness, what good is it? If the light can't be seen, if the light is ineffective, what good is that? Here's the connection to the preceding verses. The Christian who does not embrace the nine Beatitudes that we looked at last week will be ineffective in their walk. They will be no different than the world. There will be no light there. There won't be any saltiness there. So the saltless salt and the covered light have not taken seriously the call of the Beatitudes in verses 3 through 12. And then notice in verse 16, the end of the passage The works of the salty salt and the bright light do point to the glory of God, the Father. Everything that they do, everything that a Christian does, specifically points to the glory of the Father and give give him the glory, which means that the power to do these good works in the first place comes from him, not from us. We would get the glory if we were the ones who were doing it by our power. We would rightfully get the glory, but it's not. It's pointing to God. So there's a connection to verses 17 and following. This is where Jesus talks about how he fulfilled the law. And he's the only one who ever fulfilled the law. And aren't we glad that he did? We can't. But he did for us. And so the power to live the gospel life is actually in Christ. Because he's already done it. He said it is finished on the cross. You and I need to understand we cannot live this Christian life on our own power, our own talents, or our own volition. We can't just try harder and make it happen. It doesn't work. But I will tell you, that's actually really, really good news. That's good news. The good news is that we don't have to rely on us. He's already done it. He's living in us. He's filling us with his spirit. He's taught us. He's given us his word. He's called us. He's equipping us. That is the good news of the gospel. We can't do it, so he does it in us because he's gone to the cross and he's finished the job for us so there's our context you we need to we examine the sermon on the mount in bits and pieces but we need to understand the sermon on the mount holistically the, the sermon on the mount is not a fortune cookie without context this is a major narrative theme that goes through this entire uh, three chapters. It's it's a map of discipleship. Now, one more thing before we get to the salt and light, and it is this. I realize that there's a light flickering up there, and I just want to let you know that I know that. <laughs> no, there's something else, okay? I'm sure we'll get this fixed sometime this week, because um, it just started this morning. But here's the other thing before we get to the salt and light. Last week, we discussed the tension Of Living as a follower of Christ. We're going to be persecuted. Jesus says this twice and he says we're going to be reviled. We're going to face trials and challenges. But the real tension is actually actualized in these verses. He talks about that tension last week. Here's where this tension gets actualized for salt or light to be effective. It has to come in contact with that that it is affecting. This is yet another way. For Jesus to say that the true Christian is going to be in the world, but not of the world. Now, don't just run past that phrase, in the world, but of the world, and not of the world. How hard is that? That's hard, to be in the world and not of the world. And I'll tell you how hard it is. It's because I mentioned this a number of weeks ago. Uh, all we have to do is look at church history to know how hard this is. The church, historically, for 2,000 years, has swung wildly between isolation. We went out into the world, and that was really hard because um, we got a lot of the world on us, and we didn't like that. And so we're just going to isolate ourselves and get in here and be uh, us foreign and no more and stay in the church and protect ourselves, which means that we have all the right things to say, but what? Absolutely nobody to say it to. So we isolate ourselves, and then we go, well, we got to quit isolating ourselves. we got to go out in the world, and we need to be out in the world, and so we need to tell people about Jesus. Then we go out into the world, and then what happens is because of the tension of being in the world but not of the world, we begin to compromise. We we begin to uh, endure what's called complete cultural surrender or what other people call syncretism, and we end up as the church, we look just like the world. And so that gives us lots and lots of people to talk to, but what? Absolutely nothing to say. Well, neither are Jesus' vision for the individual Christ follower or for the church. He says you're to be in the world but not of the world. And I would say it's not something that's halfway in between. It's something that's above that entire spectrum because it's being done, again, by the power that's outside of us. It's being done by the power of Christ. He says, I know what I've called you to is very difficult. That's why I'm going to do it through you. You can't rely on yourself. So it's by his power that he calls us to be in and not of the world. So Jesus begins this little section here. And and I think it's interesting. He says, you are. You are salt. You are light. He doesn't say, you're in the process of becoming. He doesn't say, you will be someday. He doesn't say... If you work this little plan here that the church has very conveniently laid out for you that takes 30 years, eventually you'll be salt and light. No, he says you are salt and light. This points to the power that God has given us through his faith and the fact that he's filling us with his Holy Spirit, the power of the gospel. Uh, Tom Schrader, one of our founding pastors, who, by the way, is going to be with us next week, He summarizes verses 13 through 16 this way. He says this. Here's what Jesus wants. He wants us to make the invisible God visible, and he wants us to speak the truth boldly. And he says, if you make the invisible God visible, but you never speak the truth boldly, you're a coward. And if you speak the truth boldly, but you never make the invisible God visible through your life, then you're a hypocrite. You can't have one without the other if you're going to be salt and light. And so what Jesus is doing here, I think, is he's talking about a life of genuine love. A life of genuine love. Paul Paul David Tripp describes love this way. Love is a willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that does not demand reciprocation or that the person you're loving is deserving of it. Wow. If only, right? If only. But also, Proverbs describes genuine love this way. Wounds from a true friend are better than many kisses from an enemy. You see, love is not just affirmation, but it's also discipline. It's a willingness to correct. It's a willingness to be in the the type of relationship where people get to speak to each other with candor. With candor. So, salt and light. Here are the metaphors. Both have characteristics that we like, and both have characteristics that uh, cause some of us some trouble, and I understand that. Consider salt. Two main characteristics of salt. Number one is it seasons things. It makes things taste better. Number two, it preserves, protects, and cleanses things. Okay? So, seasoning. I like seasoning. I'm a big season guy. In fact, I really like salt. Those of you that know me well, you know I'm one of those people that will salt his food before I've tasted his food. Okay, I'm a saltaholic, self-described. You can tell anybody I said it, okay? Uh, somebody once about five years ago actually as a gift gave me a salt lick. <laughs> it's really gross, even for a saltaholic like me. I'm glad I'm not a cow. But it's the reason I like potato chips. Potato chips are a wonderful delivery device for salt, right? How about popcorn, a wonderful delivery device for not only salt but butter? Uh, Yes, my brothers and sisters. (laughs) Harkins Theaters, here we come. Anyway, so salt seasons, okay? Christians spice things up. We're distinctive, or should be, and so that's going to season life. But here's the question, how? How do we do, in what way do we season life? I believe it's in the fact that because of Christ in our life, because he demonstrated that the true life in Christ is other oriented. Was Jesus thinking of himself when he went to the cross? I don't think so. I think that the way we season life is to humbly serve and love others while also not compromising our doctrine and our beliefs. Again, be in the world but not of the world. Not a very easy thing to do. There's some tension there. But this humble, loving servant attitude coupled with this resolution to remain steadfast in Christ and what he's taught us, I will tell you, causes great dissonance in the world. Have you noticed that? People really admire the faith and the ethic of true Christ followers. They really do. They love what we do. They love the way we are. They, 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 they enjoy that. But, but, but I'll tell you what they don't necessarily like what we teach or what Jesus teaches. That's where we get into trouble. The doctrine of Christianity is what troubles so many people because parts of the faith offend the world, right? It's offensive to people. And so what they want us to do is they want us to come to their side. They want us to say, you can can have that ethic in your life, but... You can do it without believing what you believe about Jesus and his teaching. Come over here with us. Compromise your doctrine, but continue to be who you are. And my answer would be, well, I can't. Without Jesus, I can't be this person. I can't do it. Look at it this way. Salt preserves and cleanses. You rub it on meat, kills the bacteria. You can also rub salt into a wound to help clean the bacteria out of that wound Which, in theory, will help the wound heal faster. But how many of you love when you get a wound to run and rub salt in it? How many of you are, like, into that? Hurts, right? You see, the gospel's like that. It's true, and it's good news, but it's a little bit painful at times. Because you got to tell people, "Mm, you're lost without Jesus. You're a sinner. I know you think you're a really good person, but you're actually a sinner. And God looks at you and sees somebody who has fallen short of the glory of God. And without Christ, you're in big trouble. So this is a good metaphor that Jesus uses in the salt. And another reason that Jesus uses this as a metaphor is because first century rabbis were actually famous for using salt as a symbol for wisdom. And so they would teach that the foolish person is somebody who has lost their salt. If you've lost your saltiness, if you've lost those characteristics of being salty, you have lost your wisdom and now have become a foolish person. And then the last thing about salt, and I think this is critical, and I think I I, I think this is really important. I, and I've been wrestling with this for a while. The idea that salt preserves, okay? So many have taught that. Because salt preserves, and Jesus uses this as a metaphor, it means that a Christian's call in the world is to preserve moral order in the world. That we're to go out and preserve moral order somehow in this world. I don't think that's what we're being called to do. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying here. I want you to think about this. If you've ever read Genesis 1, 2, and 3, which I highly recommend. Very difficult to understand the rest of Scripture, and the nature of humanity without understanding Genesis chapter 3. And it happens to come after 1 and 2, so you might as well read 1 and 2. All right? Very important to understand those three chapters. You get to Genesis chapter 3, and you discover that because of sin, human beings are fallen, and everything has been corrupted. Sin is ruined, has corrupted, has tainted everything. Everything. And this corruption is comprehensive. It's not marginal. It's not a little. It doesn't just infect certain areas. It, it, it ruined everything, essentially. And the way we say it is that, is that sin has, has ruined our relationship with God, certainly. You see that in Genesis 3. You also see the first thing in Genesis 3, after the uh, first sin is committed, you see that relationship with others is ruined. The first thing they do is they hide, hide themselves from each other. So sin breaks relationship with God, it breaks relationship with others. It also broke our relationship with with creation. We are broken in our relationship with creation. We don't steward creation the way we were supposed to, the way God intended for us to steward it anymore, as human beings, because of sin. And then the fourth area that gets corrupted is where our relationship with ourselves is broken, We're divided. We're double-minded. Triple-minded, even. How many of you talk to yourself? Okay, all of you do. That's a proven fact. Okay, all of us are carrying on conversations in our head, sometimes out loud, with ourselves, right? All of us do that. You know why? Because we're trying to figure stuff out. We're alienated from ourselves. That's why we have these conversations, and like I said, some louder than others. I happen to be somebody who does a lot of talking to myself actually out loud. I try to do it when nobody's around, like in my car, in my closet at home, but Jackie's like a ninja, man. (laughs) She'll sneak in there when I'm having a conversation with myself in the closet. She'll stand there and listen to me, and I'll find her, it scares me. Who are you talking to, Slick? Well, myself, I'm screwed up, can I help it? I know you are, okay? Listen, listen. Scripture says, Jeremiah says, our hearts are wicked and deceptive above everything else. Who can understand them? We're divided in ourselves. We're alienated from ourselves. This is the disorder of sin. This is how rampant this is. Are we really called to preserve moral order? Do we have that kind of power in the world to preserve moral order? Think about how Scripture just assumes everywhere there's moral disorder in the world. It just assumes that. I don't think Jesus has given us the assignment of trying to preserve moral order in the world. Because we can't. We can't. Now, lest some of you begin to tweet, blog, or yelp, that the pastor of Redemption Arcadia doesn't believe in morality. Hold on. That's not it at all. I'm just saying that I'm a realist. You and I cannot preserve the moral order of this world, and it's a waste of time to try because it's not our job. It's not our call. We can live that way in Christ. We can be influencers in our little community, but to just expect the world to follow in lockstep after us because we're Christians Have you noticed that that doesn't happen? Have you noticed that that just doesn't happen? Here's why. We're expecting people who don't know Christ, who are not filled with his spirit, who do not have regenerated hearts to live in a way that we think is best. How does that work? It doesn't. That is not what Jesus is calling us to. He's calling us to live a certain way, but he's certainly not calling us to preserve the moral order, and the, if, the, if that's the case, then we have failed miserably. We have failed miserably. So, what is it that we're supposed to preserve? Here it is: hope. We have hope, and we actually are the hope of the world because we have Christ. Have you noticed? Think about Paul's writings. Have you ever? Have you ever just really studied Paul's writings from the standpoint that they are centered around the hope that we have in Christ? He's constantly pointing to the hope in Christ that we have. He's pointing to the second coming of Christ. He's saying he's coming again. This is where our hope lies. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, it's all about this idea of hope. That's what we're called to preserve. Yes, Paul says uh, you need to live uh, with Christian fruit. Galatians chapter 5, you need to be people of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. I'm on board with that. But, but all of that Christian fruit is born of what? Hope. The hope that we have in Christ. That's what we're supposed to preserve. The message that Christ is coming again. That's the hope. That's what we preserve. That's what we proclaim. We don't proclaim morality. We proclaim Jesus that's what we proclaim and there's our hope so that's salt so how about light so hills were the best places for cities why is that well number one it's a lot easier to defend a city on a hill than in a valley and number two it's also easier to find a city on a hill if you're a traveler needing hospitality or lodging or if you're a traveler traveling for business as they did in the first century looking for Business And so a city on a hill elevated makes the lights of the city shine brighter, however small that they were in the first century. And the other illustration that Jesus uses there, not just being on a hill, but also the light in the house, the common average first century Jewish home had one small lamp for the entire home, which was usually one room anyway. One small lamp. This was their technology of of their day. One small lamp that would light the entire uh, house for uh, evening and early morning activities before the sun was available. And because it was just one small lamp, they would literally put it on an elevated shelf or stand in order to maximize the benefits of the light that would go out. So as Christians, Jesus says, you and I don't hide in a corner of the world, and we don't hide under a basket. We come out in faith, And live our life in Christ. That's the light and that's the glory of God. And when the world sees our works, they know that it's not us, but it's God. And we point to him and give him the glory. Even when somebody comes up and pats us on the back, we use that as an opportunity to point them to Jesus. And make sure that he's the one who gets the glory. By the way, as we were looking at this a couple weeks ago, somebody asked this question. I thought it was a great question. It kind of stopped me in my tracks and made me stop and think about it. Uh, he said, okay, so what are some of our baskets today that hide our light today? And and I think that's a great question to consider, and, and you could come up with lots of others. I came up with two in the last couple of weeks that I think are pretty significant. This morning, while I was praying with Josh Prather, I actually came up with a third, which I'll share in a second but here's my two number one I think that our own self-righteousness becomes a basket that hides the glory of God and I'm not talking about people outside of the church I'm talking about people who ought to know better who are in church who understand the gospel when we get too full of ourselves and our own self-righteousness that becomes a basket that covers the light of God and now we're not pointing things towards the father we're pointing things to ourselves that's a basket I'll tell you here's another basket it's the church itself The way many people kind of use church to to run into but not be sent out of. We run into it on Sunday mornings and we do the Christian thing on Sunday morning and then we kind of slink off to our car and then we don't live in a gospel-centered way in the marketplace through our work and through our relationships. So the church actually becomes, in a sense, a basket that we hide the light of the glory of God under. It ought not to be that way. So we got to be careful about that. We need to understand that we not only come to church, but then we are sent out. All of life is all for Jesus. We are gospel-centered and what? Outward-focused. And it should make a di- the gospel should make a difference to us in all of our lives, every segment of our lives. That third thing that I must have been praying in the Spirit, I'm telling you, For this to happen because I just I was overcome by the fact that my own pride and arrogance becomes a basket for the gospel in my life. And I'm not talking about you. I'm not talking about you. I'm just sharing my own pride and arrogance can become a basket. And that ought not to be true either. Pride and arrogance hide the light of the gospel probably more than anything. Probably more than anything. We need to be careful about our baskets. So we're a light and we're a city. The characteristics of light, light reveals and it exposes. It reveals the truth and it reveals who God is, but it also exposes decay and it exposes foolishness. By the way, that whole idea of, uh, of exposing decay, aren't you glad that a dentist is really all about light when he goes into your mouth? You know, he's not doing it in darkness with those sharp... Hey, let me just see what's going on in there, you know. He's got light because he wants to be very careful. He wants to find the decay and the trouble that's going on. It's the same thing. Light is also something that helps us to grow, helps encourage light. It's also energy. And light is also used as a, as a, as a way to measure things. So it's a measurement. So individually and as a community, as light, understand we're going to both attract people, and we're also going to cause some level of animosity and dissonance, because the gospel exposes folly. You cannot have the truth of God lined up against the folly of the world and not have some dissonance there and some exposure. Okay? And so... We're going to be both respected and persecuted. We're going to be both admired and repelled. But in each case, we are blessed. Why are we blessed? Jesus said it last week because we're living as citizens of the kingdom of God. And we may not be blessed right now, but we will certainly be blessed eventually. And most certainly, most assuredly, we will be blessed eternally. Let's also consider this concept that we are a city. Uh, There's a lot of yous in this passage. Jesus is saying you, you, you. In the Greek, it's actually the plural you. It's not an individual you. It's a plural you. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't live this individually, but what he's reminding us is that the Christian life is lived in community, in relationship. In fact, all of life is lived in community and relationship, really. In verse 14, he says, we are a city with a light so our light shines as a community our light shines as a body the church it's interesting I I read lots and lots of research in both theology and church world and then in the communication world as well the most recent uh, research out of church world that I saw is this 78 percent of Americans who are Christians who say they are Christians so Americans who say, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Christ, 78% of them, nearly 8 in 10, say that they can be a Christian and never go to church. Not according to Jesus. Not according to Paul. Not according to the author of Hebrews. Not according to John. Not Not according to the entire New Testament. Life is lived in community understand, that's how we were created. Both Jesus and his word are clear. Christianity happens in community. Uh, again, research on the nature of humanity coming out of places like Stanford University, Johns Hopkins, University of Pennsylvania. Very recent research talks about how It's just human nature that we thrive better in relationship and in community rather than in isolation. And the reason this research is being done is because digital communication is encouraging us and leading us to be more and more isolated than ever before. And the researchers are saying it's not healthy. You know why? Because God created us in his image and in his likeness, and that means we were created for relationship and community. In Genesis 1, it says, God says, let us... Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God lives in relationship and community. Let us make man, human beings, in our image and after our likeness. We image God and reflect his likeness best when we are in relationship and in community. Not in isolation. Martin Lloyd-Jones, wonderful preacher from like the 40s, 50s, and 60s, at one point, it was presented to him, he say, they said, hey, you know, we have the ability technologically to record your sermons, audio. We can record your sermons and make them available for other people to listen to. Do you know at first, he, he vehemently resisted having his sermons recorded. Why is that? He, he resisted because he said that's not how God intended to have his word heard. He intended to have it heard in community. Now, he did say, he said, look, It's fine if you listen to a sermon in isolation alone. There is some benefit that you can gain from that. But the one thing that will not happen listening to a sermon in isolation is that you won't be with somebody else discussing how the Word is pulling you more towards Christ, how the Word is exposing your blind spots in the gospel so that you can discuss those and you can see those in each other, It's iron sharpening iron. The best way to process and to hear and to inculcate God's word into our lives is in community and in relationship. Now listen, I listen to podcasts. I love doing that. I think that's really helpful. But if you're not in community while also processing God's word, you're missing out. And I know, I know, I hear this all the time. But Frank, community is hard. People are alone. Do you know that there are other people saying that about you? <laughs> I know it's hard. I know it's hard. When iron sharpens iron, you don't think there's some friction and some tension going on there? That's the point. But it's also what advances us. If I'm just listening and studying God's word by myself, I am not getting the full benefit of the community speaking into my life and speaking God's word into me. Flesh on flesh, that's the way it's supposed to be done. Jones says this, a sermon is not a product, it's a participation. It's a participation. We were created in God's image. That means we were created for relationship. So, let's wrap this thing up. How are we specifically, tangibly, salt and light in the world? Besides the idea of proclaiming the hope that we have in Christ, besides that, how are we tangibly and specifically salt and light? I would suggest to you, it is. this is the baseline for it. We need to put others first. That's the call of the Christian ethic, put others first. I said this earlier, was Christ putting himself first when he went to the cross? Absolutely not. He was putting us first, man. He becomes not only our Savior and our Lord, but he also becomes our example of the the fact that we need to be putting others first in our life. Uh, Towards the end of September, I'm going to be doing a five-week, midweek study in the book of Ruth, the Old Testament book of Ruth. If you've read or studied Ruth uh, at all, you understand that the theme of that book seems to be that because of God... You and I need to put others first in our life. That's what Boaz does. That's what Ruth does. Just over and over, people putting others first. That's what that book is about. In the New Testament, Paul writes to the church at Philippi. And in chapter 2, he says this. Do nothing, not one thing, out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Don't put yourself first. But in humility, consider everyone else better than yourself. Look not only to your own interests but also to the interests of others outward focused serving loving others but by what power can we do that what power can we be salt and light what's our motivation and I think this is the key putting others first so serving and loving and peacemaking and advocacy good works if those things are done out of duty selfishness or shame it's not going to last. It's just not going to last. It's completely unsustainable. If we put others first out of duty or compulsion, sooner or later, what that engenders is bitterness and resentment. And if you don't believe that, just read history. That's what happens. When we're forced out of duty to put others first, it isn't sustainable. We just get mad. We throw up our hands. If we do it for selfish reasons, because it It makes me feel good about myself. It makes me a good person. It makes me look good to others. It helps my resume. It helps me make more money. Whatever it is, here's the problem with that. You never know when you've done enough. So eventually you become frustrated and quit because you don't know the standard. By the way, the standard is Jesus, and he's already done it. That's why we need to live in him. Here's the other thing that happens, though. When we do it for selfish reasons, eventually we get to a point where we can justify, yeah, I've done enough. I've done it all. I've achieved that place. I hear this all the time from Christians going, I've done my work in the church. I'm going to let everybody else serve me now. How pleasant is that? Just filled with pro- that's a problem. It's unsustainable. If we do it out of shame, how many of you enjoy doing things because you've been shamed into it? That's a problem. By the way, that's one of the things one of the struggles I have with social media is it becomes a way to just shame other people. That's a problem. And it's also not sustainable, again, because what do people do when they're shamed? They run from it. We run from shame. It's not helpful. It's not sustainable. So to serve, to advocate, to love, to do as as uh, Julie Gorman, the great biblical scholar, says, in order to do this existentially, by that she means in order to have a full-on life change into somebody who is living for others We need a vision of beauty and truth, and that vision of beauty and truth comes from one place, Christ, the cross, and his resurrection. That's the vision of beauty and truth that you and I need. We take our gaze off of us, doing things out of duty, doing things out of selfishness, doing things out of shame. All of that is just us gazing at ourselves. But when we take our gaze off us and we place it on Jesus, that's when stuff starts to happen. 30 years ago when I first started going to church, there was a little song that we used to sing in that little southern, big Southern Baptist church that I was going to. It goes like this. I kind of got tired of it, but I'll tell you, the truth of this song is, is right there. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Any of you ever sung that song? You Remember that song? A few of you. Okay. Just a little verse that you sing over and over. There's another song that's had a great impact on me. It's a country song. It's the most theologically correct country song I have ever heard in my life. It's so theologically correct that up until 2009, I would be somebody who would tell you that I can't stand country music. Then I started buying country CDs because of this one song. It's from the movie Crazy Heart. Anybody remember that movie with Jeff Bridges? It's the big song. Yes, thank you, Cody Kimmel. Got myself a witness right back there, brother. Yes, the big song, it's an amazing song. Okay, here you go. Let me give you the lyrics to this song, okay? Jeff Bridges sings this. I was going where I shouldn't go, seeing who I shouldn't see, doing what I shouldn't do, and being who I shouldn't be. But then watch this second verse. A little voice told me it's all wrong. Another voice told me it's all right. I used to think that I was strong. But lately, I just lost the fight. That's what we're talking about here. Shame, guilt, duty, selfishness. I'm strong enough to do it, but lately, I just lost the fight. It's unsustainable. And then the chorus. Funny how fallen feels like flying for a little while. I love that pause in there, that rhetorical pause. Pause. You ever notice that when you try to do stuff yourself, when you, when you wrestle control of, and, and it feels like you're flying when you first do that. But, you know, you're actually starting the descent and you don't even realize it. Funny how fallen feels like flying for a little while. Sins like that, the euphoria of sin, funny how fallen feels like flying for a little while. The next two verses, beautiful theology. I got tired of being good, started missing that old feeling free. Stopped acting like I thought I should, and went on back to being me. I never meant to hurt no one. I just had to have my way. If there's such a thing as too much fun, this must be the price we pay. It's theologically beautiful, it's theologically true. We can't do it. We need a vision of beauty and truth. And maybe some more country western songs. I don't know. When I first became a Christian, I remember I started reading the Bible because I was kind of in a culture that said you had to read the Bible to be a good Christian. So I read the Bible to be a good Christian because I I, I was doing it out of compulsion. I was doing it selfishly so that other people would look at me and go, he's a good Christian. I was doing it because I didn't want to be shamed because I didn't know the Bible well enough. Guess what? I started to hate reading the Bible. I did. Then I finally God, by the way, I will just tell you this, through Tom Schrader's teaching, God used him in an amazing way in my life. I finally got the vision of the beauty and truth and the reality of Jesus Christ on the cross for my sin, raised to a new life so that I could be a new creation and suddenly I'm devouring God's word and loving every minute of it because I'm motivated by the gospel and not me. I used to When I became a Christian, one of the great loads on my life was now i got to write a check every week when I go there. But I didn't want to be seen as a a blessed person who wasn't compassionate enough to give some money to God's work. I I, I was giving out of selfishness. I was giving out of duty. I was giving out of guilt. I was giving out of the fact that I didn't want to be shamed. And I hated giving. I did. I hated giving. Then I began to understand again the gift that God gave me by placing his son on the cross so that I would be forgiven. He got what I deserved. And then again, to be raised to newness of life. I got that vision of beauty and truth and now I recognize it's all his anyway. I'm lucky to get to keep 90% of what he gives me. And by the way, it's not just material wealth, it's my family, my relationships, my, my call as a pastor. This is all him. It's not me. It's not you, it's not us, it's him. It's the glory of God in Jesus Christ, his son. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for this sermon that you've preached through your son. Uh, the fact that it just brings us the truth in such a plain and simple way. Doesn't mean it's easy. Doesn't mean that we're going to uh, do this Without resistance, but God, it is truth. It is where the the kingdom of God has its citizens, and it is where we are blessed. And so, God, I pray, I pray that we would be given your power to live this life that you've called us to. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We come to this time where